0: Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, our host Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And by Michael Fahey.
1: Pleasure to be back, Gavin.
0: Tonight we're discussing controversy over a possible legislature-at-large party list person, the Shershin University announcing plans to close its Department of Chinese Language and Literature, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs showing off Taiwan-themed gifts that it gives to visiting dignitaries. But we'll begin with a plethora of election related news now and we'll kick all that off with us sitting here in the studio as we record today's show, eagerly awaiting, or maybe not as eagerly as some people are waiting, that what could be D-Day for the finalisation of the KMT Taiwan People's Party Presidential Election Alliance. Now the China Times on Thursday ran a headline story in which it cited KMT presidential candidate Ho Yui as saying he's issued an ultimatum for the blue and white deal and that ultimatum is today being November the 3rd, being the deadline for any deal. And according to the China Times, both yesterday and today, he believes there's no need to discuss anything after midnight tonight. And he also went on to say that trains do not wait for anyone when they pass the station, and time also does not wait for anyone. We must face up to problems quickly in order to meet with people's expectations. And all that stems from the fact that the KMT and TPP remain at loggerheads over how. To possibly field a joint presidential candidate. Now, the two parties began the week on Monday morning by holding talks of, according to the TPP's Kerwin a historic significance. Those talks between Kerr and KMT Chairman Eric Jew took place in Taipei at the old mayor's residence, in fact, if you really want to know. And speaking after that meeting, both parties announced they'd agreed to collaborate in January's elections to maximise the number of seats in the Legislative UN in order to avoid what they called one party democratic rule by the DPP. The KMT chairman also told reporters that the parties agreed on several issues. Those issues included ensuring there will no longer be one-party monopolies, that future cross-strait relations and dialogue be based on the ROC constitution, and that the next president should report to the legislative UN instead of passing that responsibility onto the Premier. However, they reached no agreement on how to pick a joint presidential candidate. Now, KMT chairman Eric Ju, the party's presidential candidate Ho Yo and TPP chairman and presidential candidate Kerwin Jiu, held more talks on Tuesday evening. Now, this is the first time that all three had met to discuss an electoral pact between the parties. Those talks took place in Taipei after initial plans to meet in New Taipei's Shindian district were changed at the last minute. Now, TPP spokeswoman Christina Young, early Wednesday, announced that both sides failed once again to agree on how to select a presidential candidate. And she told reporters that the ongoing stalemate centres on the problem that Hoyo is against conducting polls, but kerwin has made it clear that it's too late to hold an open primary. She also said that Kerr remains optimistic that the KMT Chairman will come up with a new plan. But he also warned that if Julie Lunn or Eric Jew fails to propose a new plan for this, any future meetings on the issue may be rendered unnecessary. So, Brian, it's going on and on and on and on and on and on.
2: Yeah, and I feel like this is the most dramatic thing that has happened in this election so far in a relatively calm election cycle uh, compared to 2020. And so, with regards to these plans for having cooperation, Coe initially suggested they should cooperate earlier this month and then claimed not to hear anything. Eventually, the meetings were held in the middle of the month, did not result in anything, uh, but then speculation was still on. And you had many colorful metaphors floating around. For example, at one point, Co accused the KMT of trying to facilitate a forced marriage, quote-unquote, leading to a lot of men- metaphors. metaphors for marriage between Ho and Ko. And in that respect, too, uh, describing the date in which they should decide whether to cooperate or not as D-Day, for example. And now this drama still goes on, uh, particularly with the most recent meeting, which took place at 10 p.m. at night, which was quite unusual. Uh, that was originally scheduled for DN and then ended up in Jingmei. That also took place in a factory with the gate down, and the media was kind of all over that, uh, pointing out the exact meeting time. That was 53 minutes, and they were meeting, and they all walked out with any comments and a lot of uh, criticism then from the DPP of lacking transparency in this process. And so... Is dramatic, but at the question, at the end of the day, the the debate has gone on at the, uh, with the respective parties, and there's talk of legislative cooperation. But what that entails is also a bit unclear to me. Uh, at the very least, though, there's a, a large summing blocks for presidential cooperation, and uh, it seems a little unlikely at this point, at least to me.
1: This has been a feast for Taiwan political <laughs> junkies. I could see. Brian smiling as he recited the long narrative of this drama, I would say a couple of things. One is that the I found the cooperation agreement from early this week extremely interesting. It reminded me a little bit of the 1992 consensus in the sense that Really, there's nothing that was agreed on in it except some extremely vague principles, um, such as uh, we're going to maximize the number of legislative seats that we're going to win. But there are no details about how they're going to do that rather delicate task. Uh, it seems to me highly unlikely, and there's no signs that the KMT is going to yield any winnable seats to the TPP in the, in the district elections. And uh, the TPP is really going to be relying on the party vote, but I don't see the uh, KMT doing anything to maximize the TPP's party vote either. So it's a complete mystery to me how they're actually going to implement any of this. Another thing that was really interesting about the agreement was that there was quite a bit of co-language in the agreement. For example, the statement on cross straits relations talked about exchanges, dialogue, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the ROC constitution, but specifically did not mention the 1992 consensus. And that mirrors Co's position. Ko has not endorsed the 1992 position, but Hoyo-yi has. Uh, so I thought that was very interesting. He also talked about fiscal disipl- he also mentions fiscal discipline, which is another Co touchstone. So Ko got a lot of good language in there. I, I feel it kind of symbolizes how he's rising and the KMT is falling. Which leads me to my second point, if I may. I don't know who is doing this or if it's just good luck, but the Co campaign is going great they're running a brilliant campaign for weeks now they have been at center stage by playing out by playing the kmt for weeks about this possible coalition that i think they have no intention of actually uh bringing to fruition or having a a joint ticket because i think co can i think co thinks he can win and i think it's possible that he could win too by himself if everything goes right uh, so it's it's just maximized attention to Ko and his campaign, which is perfect for somebody in second place. And in the meantime, poor ho has been kind of disappearing from view.
0: But, of course, Brian, the DPP presidential candidate, that being Lai ching Der, has been rather vocal about this supposed alliance, calling it... A hollow consensus, saying that the blue and white are talking about cooperation is simply because neither the KMT or the TPP represent mainstream public opinion in Taiwan. And he also went on to say that Beijing is the only side or entity actually looking forward to such a partnership.
2: Yeah, I, I, as usual, then, I think the pan-green camp is leaning into these attacks on cross-strait policy. And so uh, this is quite interesting. in this election cycle, it's still obviously a substrate, even if we're not talking about it as explicitly as in 2020, let's say. Uh, but what's interesting, too, about the program that was agreed on to by the KMT and TPP in these meetings is that the KMT actually signed on to Ko's proposal to drastically change the system of government, to have a prime minister instead of a president, and to change it to a, uh, a cabinet-led system, in which, for example, the premier would have to be subject to approval by the legislature. And there's such a massive shift in government that I don't think Ko is serious about the idea. He threw it out late in the election cycle to have a distinctive vision. And the KMT, I think they would also balk at this as well but they just signed on, knowing it's not a serious idea. And so I think that reflects some of the uh, way that Ko has really been able to push the KMT on this matter. Uh, Ho yoi is just not getting attention in the sense. And uh, I think particularly for Ho, his priority is on distinguishing himself from the KMT, because historically that's what his party has always done, uh, kind of staking out territory as a, a more independent-leaning Not not leaning, so a more independent Pan Blue Party that is lighter blue than the KMT, not as hardline on uh, unification issues. Uh, But then you also want to make a sign of good faith that you're willing to negotiate, but then the KMT is too corrupt and cannot actually do this, and they are trying to rig the process. It does help Koh and his campaign in that way. And also this week, Terry Gwar and his running mate
0: Tammy Lai on Thursday submitted the final batch of over one million petition signatures to the Taipei City Election Commission to qualify as candidates in the upcoming presidential election. Now, according to Gwar's office, a total of one million thirty six thousand seven hundred and seventy eight petition signatures were submitted to the commission. That figure is, of course, more than the three times more than the required number of signatures needed to become an eligible candidate. Now, a statement issued by Gwar's office said that each signature is considered by the Honhai founder to represent an affirmation and expectation. And Guo and Tammy Lai will carry the expectations of their supporters and willingly take on the responsibility of the future of the Republic of China. The signatures are, well, they're going to be anyway reviewed and ratified by the Central Election Commission. However, Guo's petition drive has been plagued by accusations of irregularities and numerous signature stations. Now a total of 16 people, some of whom have reported links to organised crime gangs been detained by investigators looking into claims of signature buying. Now, one of them is former KMT Central Standing Committee member Fan Jung Lien. Now, he's been detained by prosecutors in Shinzu on charges of giving 400 NT to each person who offered to sign Guo's campaign petition, Michael.
1: That's true, but I think that the one million petitions, uh, however many of them actually survive, but I think quite a few will, certainly above the threshold... Uh, is a pretty impressive achievement for Guo. And historically, accusations or even proven accusations of vote buying haven't really doomed all that many candidates. Uh, so I'm not really sure how much this is going to tarnish Guo for those who uh, support him. Uh, I think his core supporters are actually ex Guoyu supporters or, or Hanfen, uh, as we we call them. Uh, I personally know that not all of those petitions are affirmations of him because I know of two or three green voters who intentionally went and signed petitions supporting him because they want him in the race to weaken the KMT even further. They may now have being second thoughts since now Kuo has uh, political capital from all these petitions uh, another hurdle that he's overcome that's been really important is that his running mate managed to give up her american citizenship in really a very short time so things are Gula can continue to play as long as he doesn't have any trouble in china or he doesn't care about any trouble in china <laughs>
2: Yeah, it is quite interesting. I mean, uh, one of the features of this election cycle is that as we are around seven days out, for some reason, Go's ads are ubiquitous. And for the other candidates, I'm seeing far less. And so every taxicab or every billboard I run to, it's Terry Go. I don't see Lighting Jingde or HoYoE or even Koemanja too much in other places. And that's, so, that's
1: what I've seen, too. Yeah, Lots so it's, of, here goes. It's, it's, it's
2: a little bit, uh, I mean, it doesn't surprise that, uh, considering how much money he has, but he really put a lot of resources into this, and you do run into people doing petitions everywhere, and so it's not surprising that he got the signatures. And I think, yeah, it definitely does uh, uh, lead to the likelihood he will stay in the race and run till the end, as he claims he will, if he ha- views himself as having the support from people. But that does keep him viable, and having political capital to keep surviving, and being an active figure in politics, And so there is that. Uh, And I think what's interesting, too, as polarization sets in, as there are these accusations of vote buying and so forth, perhaps this actually in some way helps Go. He can allege irregularities by the Central Election Commission, for example, claim that he's being unfairly targeted. And uh, I think for his core supporters, this will actually just drive home the partisanship narrative, the view of the system, the government as being corrupt and go as the person standing up to that. And so I think he does benefit from that.
0: And Michael, I mean, do you think Terry Gore He's obviously going to get the figure. It's obviously going to pass the threshold. Probably a conclusion. Yeah, that looks pretty clear. This puts him in two separate places. It puts him as a place to run as a candidate, but it also puts him as a person that could be a playmaker and a position to actually talk to one of the other parties, the KMT or the TPP.
1: Yeah, I was just actually about to ask Brian whether he thought that uh, some kind of coalition or deal making. Between Go and Ko Mm -hmm. might be more likely than between uh, the KMT and Ko. Uh, It seems to me it would be a perfect combination for Ko because Ko's big bet in this election is that he represents the current mainstream of Taiwanese society—the centrist voters who are nervous about DPP policy and would you know don't see anything wrong with nuclear power and you know want the economy paid attention to and if he can get the go supporters as well who are kind of the deep blue kind of outflanks the kmt is that possible
2: yeah, I think it's a quite interesting uh, arrangement in that sense. I think Go is more likely to align with Ko because he uh, feels stiffed by the KMT. He did not get the nomination, said they went with Hoyoi, and so that boosts his ego. And then uh, I think uh, one of his motivations for running this time is to hit back at the KMT, uh, feeling the party is ungrateful to him and so forth. And so it's more likely then he would align with the kind of anti-establishment ethos of Ko and in that sense. A better fit in, as well. Uh, I also do think Go, compared to Hoyoi, has more support for from young people, uh, which more aligns with Ko and ja as well. But then one does have the same issue of who would be the second fiddle to the other, and that could lead to stumbling blocks. And right now, I think the three of them are playing a kind of three-way game in which, for example, as negotiations with the KMT and TPP have not worked out, then Ko goes and makes appearances with Terry Go. And uh, as he was conducting these negotiations in the middle of the month, he also stressed that he had met with Terry Goh twice. Uh, re- in, in recent memory. And uh, so there is that, and that it will make things complicated. But uh, there's still the fundamental question of who withdraws in favour of who. It's possible, though, that it wouldn't be go being a VP, let's say, but taking a position in the government, such as Premier and so forth. The Premiers are swapped out pretty quickly.
0: And if all that excitement wasn't enough for political pundits to salivate over, the DPP presidential candidate, Lai ching this week, said that basically, well, he's got a list of possible running mates, and topping that list is the current envoy to the United States, Xiao Bi Kim. Now, according to William Lai, he currently has a list of six possible vice presidential picks which include Bi Kim Xiao or Xiao Bi Kim, however you want to say it, as well as former culture minister Jung Lee Chun. And he says they're the two candidates that are generating the most discussion at the moment. So, Michael, we've got two names, but we don't know who the others are because he's refusing to say.
1: I think he did say that the others, or that his his overall list is mostly women, um, but there were at least a couple of men on in consideration. But I think all along, uh, I've always thought that Jung Lee Jun, the former minister of culture, and Shalmechin, uh, the current ambassador to the U.S., are the two most likely candidates. And it does seem that Shelby uh, uh, Kim is. Uh, uh, looking more and more likely, he said. He's now. He said before she's on the list, and now he said that uh, she's kind of at the top of the list. And there were pretty prominent pictures of them eating hot dogs and wearing Mets uniforms uh, <laughs> some time ago. I was originally uh, had pretty mixed feelings about this idea. I feel that shall be Kim. Uh, has done a extraordinary job as ambassador in the U.S. She's just perfect for this role, uh, you know. So, so bringing her out of that might risk the high point, the maximalization of Taiwan's, you know, role in the U.S. Uh, right now, which I think are, is it, as long as I've known it, U.S. Taiwan relations are clearly the best they, they ever have been. But I can really see why he might want to bring her back as VP because he doesn't really – although he has more international experience than anybody else in this presidential election, he doesn't really have that much. And she definitely does, and she's known in Washington, and she could really take over the the, the, the foreign affairs and maybe a bit of the national security portfolio and let him concentrate on other things. So it makes uh, – uh, a lot of sense um jung lee jun does seem like a good candidate too but it seems to me that she'd make an interesting premiere so we might see more of her as well and elevating shelby kim to the vp spot uh, if they manage to win might put her in line for a future presidential run which is pretty remarkable given the fact that she has an american mother uh, and I think, uh, you know, the international community in Taiwan should always remember that Xiaobi Kim has several times proposed and even introduced bills as the legislature to give us better access to dual nationality. So I think at least the international community should be well behind her <laughs> candidacy. It's ironic, too, because uh, Tammy
2: Lai actually also has an American parent,
1: so, uh, though that, that is what led to
2: the uh, American citizenship issue. So it's kind of, it would be interesting, actually, if there are two people that have an American parent that are VP candidates in this election. Um, yeah, with regards to Xiao and uh, with Zheng, I think what's interesting is the question of domestic versus international. Uh, oftentimes in English language discourse, there's a lot of discussion of Xiao because she has done a really good job uh, shoring up ties between the Tsai administration and Washington, D.C. Uh, but I think particularly for Lai, the question then is, uh, with Zheng, for example. Zheng would do some work in softening his image as more conservative compared to Cai, uh because she'd be perceived as more socially progressive. And that might help domestically in that sense. I also think the other factor is that she is more firmly in Lai's camp than Xiao is, and Xiao is more in Cai Ing-wen's camp. And there were attempts, I think, by Lai to get rid of Tsai's people, as in a rather clumsy attempt to turn uh, out some of the legislative candidates that would have been closer to Tsai, but would have been strong candidates. Uh, and so I think it does actually go back to factionism in that sense. And that is a question. I did, I have seen uh, Zheng out with Lai campaigning as in a very kind of VP-like position, such as when they made an appearance at the Pride Parade last week. And so there is that. I mean, right now, Xiao is not here, and so cannot be out there campaigning. And so... I think it depends on the DPP's assessment of which aspect they want to focus on more. But there are arguments for both sides as well. I mean, for example, Xiao staying in the U.S. and continuing to shore up relations or taking a position as Minister of Foreign Affairs, that might also be useful. But uh, it's it's really hard to say at this point. I think the DPP may itself be trying to figure that out internally.
1: And Michael? Let's let's not forget that uh, Zheng has her PhD from France mm-hmm. and certainly modeled the Ministry of Culture on the European mm-hmm. model and actually could be a very effective, uh, you know, representative or or VP with responsibility for European affairs. I guess mm-hmm. it's just a question of, you know, are relations with the U.S. more important mm-hmm. or relations with uh, Europe? But Jung is not lacking international experience or mm-hmm. vision, I think. Mm-hmm.
2: That's
0: right. And Brian, I mean, if Lai Jingde does pick shall Bi Kim, or mm. the former culture minister, who is Ho Yui going to pick, and who is Ko and Je going to pick?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I think with Ho it's actually the most opaque, but uh, with Ko and Jir, his, uh, nominees, his list of nominees are much shorter. Uh, with Ho then, and Ko, I would expect both to pick women again, just again because this is a, a mantle of an election, and so there's that. And uh, I think uh, with Ko, it's possible it would be Huang Shan Shan or someone like that, uh, female politician in the party that is prominent. Uh, I think Ann Kao is probably not a great choice <laughs> because of the many scandals. But in another circumstance, I think it could be that. Uh, but also, I think Ko... I'm sorry, I mean, Ko will cautiously be about who he picks because it's possible this person could be a rival from in the future. I do actually anticipate the TPP seeing some splits regarding the question of are you reducible to your main political figure, Ko and Joe, or not? Because these are people that joined the party but have political careers and ambitions of their own. They usually are not newcomers to politics that became the TPP's prominent politicians. And so, yeah.
0: We have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important messages. Welcome back to Taiwan this week now and we'll continue with election news as the Taiwan People's Party and the DPP are in a rather bitter dispute over, well, the TPP's decision that it may choose a China-born person for its party list as a legislature-at-large seat. Now, this concerns the the candidacy of the New Taiwan New Residence Development Association chairperson Xu Chuan Ying for a party list seat. Now, The DPP all week has been screaming, Brian, that this poses a security threat to Taiwan.
2: So uh, this is quite interesting, actually, because this issue has been flagged before, that there's a rising number of Chinese bosses in Taiwan, and perhaps they would act on behalf of China's interests. Uh, members of pro-unification groups, uh, even violent ones, sometimes are Chinese spouses. The China Concentric Patriotism Association's head is one example, though she has now fled to China. Uh, and this takes place in a context where there is already accusations against the KMT, specifically regarding Taiwan's domestic submarine program with the KMT legislator that was accused of leaking information to China and South Korea. And she's not a Chinese spouse, but then this has really flagged this issue, I think, of uh, apparently leaking information and uh, being ties with the CCP and so forth, and so I think this is why this come up. But it actually, takes place I think at ironic timing for the DPP because the DPP is facing a scandal about Zhao Tianling, the legislator who's running for re-election, pulling out because of an affair with a Chinese woman. And the KMT went on the counterattack during this, saying that well, this could what if he passed on secrets to this person? And so it's actually a uh, kind of mudslinging on both sides, and it's interesting to see the issue of Chinese spouses flagged in this way. Uh, I mean, there are a group that. Uh, has lobbied for rights. The KMT calls for reducing the time for them to be able to stay here, et cetera, and has always positioned itself as protecting them. But they are rising as a voting bloc, and uh, the DPP maybe is uh, leveraging on the rest of the population in a way that kind of alienates them, obviously.
0: So, Michael, I mean, do you think that there was a motive behind his saying that we're thinking about putting this woman on the party list?
1: I'm not sure. It seems that... As I said earlier, I feel that Ko is running a brilliant campaign, but I don't know if it's the product of some grand plan or things are just working out perfectly for him. (laughs) I I, I think that the idea of uh, you know other parties, including the KMT and the DPP, now have tradition have had. At large, represent uh, legislators who have represented uh, the interests of the Xinjuming or the new residents Mm -hmm. of Taiwan. Uh, One was, as I recall, was a Cambodian-born woman, and uh, for the KMT. And the current one is ethnic Chinese from Malaysia who 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 married a Taiwanese. Um, So this would be the first time you'd have a uh, PRC spouse. Um, which there are, I think, about as many PRC spouse citizens, about 150,000, as there are foreign spouse Mm -hmm. citizens. Um, And so it kind of makes sense for them to have somebody in there. And it makes sense for Ko because, uh, you know, he might be able to get some of their votes. But I think that once this was floated and the DPP took the bait, um, then – Coe can use this to draw a great deal of uh, attention and also possibly attract deeper blue votes as well to his centrist base. So it really makes all makes a lot of sense to him. There are some major concerns with this candidate, though. Uh, there are allegations that Uh, She may have been some kind of party cadre in China and that she had a car and some kind of special position. And so uh, the national security agencies are apparently looking into this closely. And it's you know, it's not clear to me whether these allegations have any basis or not, but they are pretty serious.
2: It is quite interesting, because it did actually surprise me a little that the the TPP would float a Chinese spouse as a candidate, because this is traditionally such a KMT plank. And I think it reflects a way in which the TPP is sort of taking on some traditional positions of the KMT, but trying to twisted its own uh, political brand. For example, uh, Coe's energy policy, embracing nuclear power in that sense, was also another example of this. And so, uh, the the issue regarding Chinese spouses and foreign spouses often are interlinked, uh, particularly because there are a lot of foreign spouses that are ethnically Chinese, and so it comes up. But this is a, a group that both parties want to appeal to. Just the DPP obviously has challenges with Chinese spouses in that sense, uh, given the nationality issue. And is also really interesting, now, though, and I think it's important to flag the issue. There was also the case of a uh, Chinese spouse of a Taiwanese person that was detained in China for being a member of a Tsai Ing-wen support group. And there's not been a lot of attention to this, but he's another case in which there's a Taiwanese, person with Taiwanese nationality that is thought to be um, held in China on political uh, charges. For example, also with Fu Cha, the publisher of uh, of texts that are critical of the CCP, also being held in 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 China and also, I believe, a partner of a Taiwanese person. And so he had Taiwanese nationality, was trying to give that up. But then those people are not put in this Chinese spouse framework uh, because they are critical of the CCP and so forth. And so it's interesting to see how the issue uh, skews i think between green and
1: blue it's also um you know i think uh i have concerns about the level of prejudice and discrimination that Mm -hmm. prc spouses in particular face in taiwan Uh, most of them the overwhelming majority are women uh they're usually on the bottom of society Uh, They, you know, work hard and restaurant jobs and things like this and have children to support and often don't have a a happy domestic history and that kind of thing. They're really kind of one of the more downtrodden groups in Taiwan and and being demonized all the time as being, you know, a potential fourth column or something like this, uh, you know, does polarize them to the extent that they vote. But how many of them actually vote? I don't know that we have any statistics on how politically active uh they are but in a very close election which this could very well be if a third of them turned out to vote and they mostly voted for uh kobe for americo Ko, it could make a significant difference so
2: yeah i think it's, it's definitely the case that there's prejudice rising against them I and mean, we see the backlash against hong kongers of all people recently yeah. and so then you know It'd be even more extreme, I I believe, with Chinese spouses.
1: It's always been like that with Chinese spouses. Exactly. I just think it probably has gotten worse.
0: And moving on from politics now, and Taipei's Shishin University this week announced that it will be closing its Department of Chinese Language and Literature in two years due to the island's declining birth rate. Now, university officials say they've applied to the Ministry of Education to stop enrolment of first-year students in the department beginning the 2025 academic year. Now, according to the university, the department used to have between 50 and 60 freshmen each year, but that number has now fallen to just 26 this year. Now, news of the department's pending closure has been met with Dismay by some groups one of those groups being the taiwan chinese society which said that taiwan's teenage population and industrial changes mean that all universities are responding prudently to the cultivation of future talent but universities should also ask themselves about the value of its department as cultivating the humanities remains a worthy investment and schools of higher learning should remember their social responsibilities
1: i personally find this fascinating since I did an undergraduate major in humanities (laughs) as well that does not have much economic value, although uh, I think it was personally worthwhile myself. Um, What I am relieved to see in this discussion is there isn't any suggestion that canning this Chinese department, this Chinese language and literature department, is some evil plot by the dpp to desinicize i actually pronounced that word correctly uh <laughs> taiwan uh it it really we're, we're seeing this as a worldwide trend in in the united states and the uk i believe that the study of english literature has fallen greatly out of favor because people perceive that it's just there's no good economic return on it and people uh, our, I think, young people today, I'm really surprised at how sophisticated and concerned they are about the economic yields on their degree. It wasn't really something I thought about at all when I was that age. Uh, probably should have. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, Shershin University is a private university. It's been controlled by the the uh, Chung family and is kind of... Uh, a classic example of a Taiwanese family-run university. In- Interestingly enough, the Chung family is very oriented towards the humanities. Uh, the Eileen, the, one of one of the family members, is a prof- very well-known professor of Chinese literature at Duke, and uh, the you know they they have a, one of them was a well pretty well-known poet, um, but you know financially. Uh, the private universities are really in trouble because of the demographic changes right now. Uh, Chinese enrollment at universities and departments at the national universities is absolutely fine, and none of those departments are in any danger. So I think it's just the economics of running the private universities, even a relatively prominent one like Shuxian University, is returning to its roots as essentially a vocational and career training school. Uh, I have mixed feelings about that, but uh, I don't think it's the end of the world.
2: Yeah, I also have a degree in uh, literature and specifically Chinese literature. And so it is it is one of those issues, I think, just because of the fact that it's not very marketable and we t- live in a time of uh, downsizing of educational institutions. And I think it's kind of interesting in respect that uh, Chinese departments in Taiwan usually skew blue, which is maybe not entirely surprising uh, as compared to Taiwanese literature departments, if they exist, that it's not as common, uh, which unsurprisingly skew green. But I think there is a kind of dovetailing perhaps of identity trends where young people are less interested in studying Chinese literature Uh, With these political views, with rising identity and so forth, as it combines with this uh, desire for a more marketable degree, and that leads to these issues. And I think it is a challenge, particularly I mean, this has come up in the past regarding, for example, the teaching of classical Chinese, that perhaps the curriculum just has too much classical Chinese, uh, and calls for reducing that, which then leads to this debate about descientization and so forth. And so I don't know the specifics of what uh, the department there teaches, or what it focuses on, or its strengths, in fact, but it is possible that the curriculum is not as appealing to young people. Perhaps people are more interested in modern literature, for example. Uh, so there's that. I mean, that that is a challenge, I think, faced by every department in the humanities, particularly literature. Uh, literature can be quite broad and vast and for Chinese literature, then which aspect does this department focus on? And does it appeal to student base? Is it very strong in, for example, ancient Chinese literature, modern Chinese literature, or even uh, of quote-unquote inner China, for example, literature written by non-Han people? Uh, So those are all questions that are salient, I
1: think. Well, it reminds me a little bit of uh, a very elderly English professor that I had in college who was uh, talking about his experience at Oxford. And he was having a little trouble understanding what his elderly professors were taught, what they meant by the moderns. They were they, <laughs> they, they didn't like these moderns. And he thought they were talking about, you know, twentieth century modernism, like Joyce and and T.s. Eliot. But eventually, he realized that for them, the moderns meant, the 18th century writers like Swift and Voltaire and people like that, and they felt that teaching those people were too modern and they wanted to concentrate on, you know, Beowulf and Chaucer and maybe (laughs) Shakespeare. And that's a lot like what many Chinese departments in Taiwan are like. Uh, There is a heavy emphasis on the classical heritage and tradition. But that said... um, the study of literature is a wonderful thing. I, it may be a bit of a luxury item, uh, <laughs> and I can't promise you that it will make you any money. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, I, I have a graduate degree in Chinese literature, and it has enriched my life uh enormously and in ways that I can't really uh explain. So um don't don't give up on Chinese literature or Taiwanese literature. Why why can't they be the same department? Yeah, I think it's one of those things that would fight with each other so much. (laughs) There's nothing so bad as academic politics. Exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And before we go this week, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs this past Sunday unveiled the Taiwan-themed gifts that it regularly gives to visiting foreign dignitaries. Now, those gifts included ones with motifs of endangered indigenous animals or flora, and images of Taiwan's arts and culture scene and natural environment. Also, it included hacker tongue blossom teacup and plate set, a decorative tile with images of the formosan black bear and of course tea so michael you saw this story you saw the list of all the lovely gifts they give to dignitaries. did any of them sort of grab you and say i'd love someone to give me that
1: well i'm sure that some of the tea is pretty nice uh (laughs) and i do enjoy uh i do enjoy tea so this story comes up every few years uh it's 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 really interesting, I think that um it's probably because gift giving can be a really you know ban can be a really big deal in taiwanese society uh and People are fascinated by the idea that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has a special department and a and a whole set of rooms or something just filled with gifts that you can get you can you can sign for a note and get one anytime and go give it to somebody and the the details of of giving them and you know the taboos for certain groups and cultures it, it's just something that uh it seems to be fascinating to the general public, and so it's covered every so often. I, I one The one that I really noticed was the Tong oil tree decorated porcelain tea set that was given to somebody from the Caribbean recently. Uh, they're really emphasizing, as they have been for a while, that everything's from Taiwan and that it represents Taiwan's diversity. So in this case... Uh, the tong oil tree motif is supposed to represent Taiwanese hakas. That's a real interesting question because it's true that in Hakka communities, there are these beautiful white flower tong, hua, tong oil trees that were planted by the Japanese for economic reasons. Uh, but they have kind of been made into a symbol of hakas. Uh, They don't really have any long standing relationship. I don't think hakas in other places associate themselves with, basically it's a, it's a recent tourist promotion invention. Uh, I think it's kind of a nice one, but uh, it does kind of reveal the complexities of identity in Taiwan because you're trying to show Taiwan's diversity by highlighting its Hakka community Probably this guy from the Caribbean doesn't know that hakas exist, even though they're all over the Caribbean. So he's given this tea set with a Tonghua oil tree and said that, oh, this represents hakas and stuff. He's probably going back saying, well, who are these hakas and what are these tong oil trees? Uh, but it is, it is complicated uh, how this kind of identity can be constructed and then used in how Taiwan presents itself to the world.
2: Yeah, I wonder about that, because I wonder how much of the details are revealed or you know publicized with these sets. For example, that Hakka one. Uh, for example, right now, the World Hakka Expo is ongoing, and there's a section of that about Hakka's influence on reggae in Caribbean music, because there are some songs that became hits. But that's a very detailed uh, aspect of history it has been overlooked, and is this dignitary going to know that just looking at it? And so sometimes I think maybe an explanatory note would be nice with some of these gifts. I mean, sometimes some of the things I've seen in past years seem quite clever. Craft beer, for example. Well, that's something that's distinctive and unique. And a lot of craft beer are trying to emphasize something specifically Taiwanese these days in terms of flavors and how they brand themselves and, and so forth. Uh, but then other gifts, you can't give something terribly expensive, but it has to be nice and well-crafted and show something about Taiwan. Uh, sometimes it'd be uh, a more coherent vision would be necessary. It's also interesting to think about then when you have changes of political administrations, suddenly the gifts and the motifs are the other side, emphasizing Chineseness and, and et cetera. But with the side administration, there's this emphasis on pluralism and cultural. For diversity.
0: And, Michael, if you were a foreign dignitary visiting, what gift would you like to get from the government?
1: Well, obviously the most expensive one, <laughs> uh, which I understand used to be, I'm not sure if it still is, was a 15,000 NTJ necklace. Unfortunately, I would be unlikely to qualify for it because only a foreign head of state or his spouse or her spouse can receive one of these Taiwan Jade necklaces.
0: And I'll take it, Brian, that you'd be okay with a key ring designed like a bubble tea club.
2: Uh, Perhaps, but I also do like the Gaolian gifts that uh, sometimes exist or the very special Gaolians for uh, special events.
1: I I could do with the case of the draft, uh, the case of the... uh, craft beer as well it's too expensive (laughs) for me to buy normally
2: and that's where we'll leave it
0: here this week on Taiwan This Week and I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh Good night. and by Michael
1: Fahey take care everybody
0: and thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me Gavin Phipps and don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you get access to all our previous shows